My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. As it is each year, we start the season of Lent this year with Jesus driven into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. For a tiny bit of context, how we got here, this is just after John the Baptist baptized Jesus and God the Father's voice proclaimed that he is the beloved Son. So we got a great Jewish preacher, the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Spirit, the Son, and Satan, just in two scenes. That should clue us in that this is a big deal, whatever's going on here. All the major players are involved as Jesus's public earthly ministry begins. Now, as we often have looked at, I will again point out that while we often say these are the temptations that Christ faced, that's probably not a great word for it. I mean, One reason alone is that in our context, that word may call to mind the controversial film, The Last Temptation of Christ. It was controversial because it suggested that Jesus was really tempted to forgo the crucifixion, to give up public ministry, and instead settle down as a family man. I haven't actually seen the film, but it was agitated so many people because being a family man has implications about someone's sex life. So forgive me if this is a poor observation. Again, I haven't seen it. But that seems like a little bit strange to find that so offensive. Or at least what that offense seems to imply about these temptations seems a little strange. I suspect that we broadly imagine Jesus as somehow just going through the motions, like he's reading lines off of a script. The temptations, therefore, aren't really temptations so much as 
something that just needs to be done to fulfill some prophecy, to check a box off of a to-do list. And, and it does fulfill some prophecy, or at least serve as a double homage. I mean, Jesus is taking on the role of Moses in the wilderness, 40 days instead of 40 years, depending on God for sustenance. And at the same time, he's tempted as Job was, with God and Satan apparently cooperating on the matter. In Job, they speak about it like it's a wager, but in the Gospels, the cooperation is merely implied. It's the Spirit of God who drives Jesus to be tempted by the devil. So the question might be, was there ever any actual chance Jesus could fall for one of these tricks? Was there any actual temptation to do these things? And we apparently don't think so. Because if the movie implies that Jesus really had human temptations, the sort most any adult male would have, and many find that offensive, but what's a temptation that doesn't actually tempt you? That doesn't seem to mean very much. So a better way to translate this, and really I would say a better way to just think about the event at all, is that this is a trial or a test. And those three words are often interchangeable, temptation, trial, and test, in a lot of contexts, you can pick whatever one you want, but they have particular nuance depending on the case. And in this case, a trial or test suggests that this is about figuring out Jesus's identity. The same way that a devil's advocate, somebody you're debating with, might refine your arguments by pointing out there are alternatives, the devil here refines our concept perhaps Jesus' own concept, of what it means to be the Christ by suggesting and thereby eliminating alternative possibilities. It's not that Jesus could have fallen for a trick from Satan or be tempted into doing something he ought not to. It's that Satan has this job in the heavenly court, as it was you know, laid out in the book of Job and a little bit elsewhere, and that job is to challenge humanity's worthiness and innocence and what we deserve. Now, there's a corruption, some kind of malfunction in there somewhere by which Satan will still claim we are worthless, guilty, and deserve death, even when God has declared us worthy, innocent, and inheritors of eternal life. It's curious that the devil has this part to play in the Christ event, in the gospel, even as the gospel itself as a whole is a declaration that Satan's role is no longer relevant, at least not for those of us who are saved by grace through faith on account of Christ. He's just here so he can be proven wrong. The first test is about whether Jesus will break a fast and feed himself supernaturally. And he has that power. He will feed thousands in a likewise manner soon. But he chooses to stay true to what God the Father has called him to do as the Holy Spirit drove him out there to do. The second test is about whether Jesus will forgo the difficult holy life, which is rife with rejection and humiliation and suffering and death, or make a literal deal with the devil to rule as a human king would. I mean, Satan claims to have authority over all the nations, and Jesus doesn't even push back a little bit. He merely turns down the offer. And then the third test is about whether Jesus could compel, could force the angels to act on his behalf, to serve him, uh, to prompt them by doing something reckless, like jumping off the roof of a temple. So we move from him tempted to, not tempted, but, you know, tested, uh, to serve himself rather than others to be served by the world rather than serve the world, and then lastly, to be served by supernatural forces, again, in place of fulfilling his call to serve others. These are all things Jesus can do, could do. But because it is not what he is called to do, what is best for the world, Jesus forgoes what he could do and instead sets out to do what he 
should. We take that scenario and we translate it into our own practice of fasting? <laughs> Lenten fasting? Seems like a little bit of a jump, but we'll get there. Many Christians give something up or add something on as a way to honor and emulate Jesus during this season because, after all, Jesus fasted for 40 days, so why not us? For this season, we're asking the question this year, why do we do what we do? So now that we finally got there, why do we fast? Now, to answer that, let's first ask, why did Jesus fast? One explanation is he was getting mentally, emotionally, and spiritually prepared for the trials by weakening his human state to the point of near starvation. And maybe there's something to that. But again, there really wasn't a chance he'd succumb to the temptation. It was a matter of proving who he was, whether then, you know, and whether he would abuse the powers that he had. The trials were about self-limiting his power, giving up something he could easily have or do, because by giving something up, in a sense, sacrificing it, he could better serve the world and God, better love neighbor and love God, just as he calls us to do. That's at its core what fasting is. It's knowing I could have this or that, but choosing not to, at least for a while, as a way to demonstrate devotion to God. It's a foot in the door for this concept of self-limiting. And I hope that word, that expression, self-limiting, sounds at least a little bit familiar, as it's one I use every now and again, uh, an important word for describing what very broadly Christianity is about, that there's a relational God who creates us somewhat independent creatures and then seeks relationship with us. In order to have a relationship that's genuine, both parties must have some say, some free will, some decision to make. And therefore, God withholds God's power to compel us into relationship. Hence, at least for this age, not every little thing is God's will, God's plan, or something, even something God consciously allows or expects. God holds back that kind of power so that we have some say so that real relationship can happen. This is then reiterated in Jesus' trials, determining who the Christ will be. Notice, the Messiah will not serve himself, will not compel humanity with earthly authority, or compel angels. Jesus Christ self-limits those powers as to maintain real, genuine relationship with humanity, as to accomplish our salvation. Fasting is just a tiny microcosm of all that. It's a small window into understanding the steps God takes in reaching down to us. So what about us? Aside from honoring Jesus in a set tradition, why would we do such a thing? Try to get an inroad, an understanding into what it means to self-limit. Well, it turns out we are tempted in a similar way to how Jesus was tested here. You know, and we can say, uh, we could still say tested, we're tested in a similar way or put to trial, but for us, there is a chance that we will succumb, so temptation is a fair word for us. There are certain things afforded to baptized, set-free Christians uh, that are kind of like the powers that Jesus demonstrated here and choose, chose not to abuse. We have certain things afforded to us that we might abuse but should not. So what are some of those? For example, there's the awareness of how God calls us to pure, holy, moral living and what that might look like. Overemphasized and abused, that knowledge can turn into judgmentalness. It can be used to exclude others because their sins are a bit different from our own. Okay, then there's 
another gift, which is, of course, the infinite grace of God, which justifies and declares us forgiven. To abuse that gift would mean to carry on sinning and perhaps even lean into that which you know is wrong simply because God will forgive you either way. Third, there's the knowledge of our eternal life. And then what do we do with that? We could live recklessly for the sake of self-satisfaction and thrill, or we could live selflessly for the sake of others, because no matter what we risk or lose, we know we will be okay. The first option would be an abuse of that gift of God, but the second one honors it. We could go on, but there's three temptations that you face in poetic parallel with Jesus's trials. In this life, will you use your knowledge of God's law to enlighten and encourage others or use it to condemn and exclude them or maybe even weigh down your own conscience? Will you use the grace you have found to forgive yourself and forgive others or abuse it by carrying on sinning? Will you use your anticipated resurrection as an excuse to seek yourself or to serve others? The gifts of God can be honored or they can be abused. How we treat them is our own trial, our temptation, to see what kind of Christian or really what kind of human we really are. What's our identity? Fasting for us, again, is just a small inroad into that. If I think to myself, I could eat or drink whatever I want. I could do as I please. I can speak in whichever manner I choose. But then I choose to refrain from all that It's a demonstration of who I am as a Christian or as a person. Fasting for a time like this, say 40 days, says to God and to our neighbors, I would and I will give up any of these gifts if that's what's best for God and neighbor. Giving it up for 40 days is its own sort of test to see if that's the case. So that's why we do what we do. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.